Thank you, God. I, I pray that, that that song, those lyrics are true of me this morning. God, I pray that I mean, I'm going to come up here. I'm going to talk. I think you give me some stuff to think. But, God, I just pray that that is true of me, that I'm here to wait for you. And, God, I pray that's true of us, that we're here to wait on you. You've got something to say to us this morning. But, honestly, I don't, I don't know that I want to talk about what we're talking about this morning. God, I just pray that you've got a plan. I know you do, Jesus. And I pray for that this morning, that you're going to show up, that you've already shown up as we've worshipped and as we've knit our hearts together. And God, we are expecting some awesome things. This morning, over the last half an hour, and the next few minutes, that God, you will move in our hearts. Everybody that loves you said, amen. Well, North Point, if you could find your way back into your seat, that would be awesome. Um, I just want to take a second and say uh, super glad that you made it here this morning, uh, especially if you're a visitor, if you're a first-time guest with us. We know that there's you know, lots of other things maybe that um, you could be doing, even if you've been with us uh, a thousand times. We know that it's uh, Father's Day and you could be sleeping in. But here you are, and that's a beautiful thing. So we're super glad that you're here. Our folks are going to just pass out some books. It would be great if you just mark down your name in there, any contact info, if anything's changed. We love knowing that. We can keep up to date with you guys. And so that would be awesome. And then in another second, our offering is going to come down this morning. Uh, buckets are going to come down to take our morning offering. And again, if you're a guest with us this morning, feel no obligations, really for folks who <coughs> considered North Point to be there home church. If I haven't met you, my name's Chris Carter, and I'm the pastor of Connections here, which is very cool and very new and very exciting. And what that means really is that I get to develop some systems and ways and processes for people to get into some deeper, authentic relationships, which is kind of fun and kind of cool because we think that life is better together. Matter of fact, if you're here in August, uh, we're going to spend a whole month unpacking that whole reality that I think life is better together. Matter of fact, we at North Point, this this whole discipleship thing, this whole being a, a Christ follower, growing in your sanctification, we think that happens best in the context of relationships. So I'm super excited to figure that out and help think through that. So that's kind of who I am if we haven't met Today is kind of funny, at least I'm just thinking this now, I didn't tell first service this, so it's just for you guys, but um, today's Father's Day, right, and it's, I've been doing this church stuff for a long time, and every year on Mother's Day, we preach like a really encouraging topic, and then we get to Father's Day, you know what we're talking about today? Sin. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Like Mother's Day was like celebrate. Okay, whatever that means. I have no idea what that means. But we are talking and we are in a series called Turning Points, uh, working our way through the book of Joshua. You'll see where we're going this morning. And so at some point, you're going to want to find Joshua chapter 7. Verses aren't going to be on the screen behind us. I really want you to see this story in your copy of the scriptures. If you have one, if you brought a Bible this morning, if you don't and you need to borrow one in the pew back, that's great. Page 182 will take you right to Joshua 7. If you brought your own Bible, I have no idea what page that's on, so you're on your own. If you bring an electronic device and you're using version or Bible Hub or Bible Gateway or whatever electronic version of the Bible you're using, that'll be easy. You'll punch in Joshua 7 and you'll be there. It'll be good stuff. I want you to see this because there's some interesting stuff that happens. But I want to start with a question. Get us on the same page. Have you ever won? Like, have you ever won something? Boy, you guys are sad. It's a sad bunch, right? Like, no... What, have you ever won something like something that you wanted to win so bad and then you won? And, and maybe it's a season of life where you would just feel like you're winning everything. 
like, like the great theologian Charlie Sheen said, winning. I mean, do you ever feel like that? You're just like winning, like you're just excited. And you, my mom used to use this phrase, like phrase, she'd say being on cloud nine. I have no idea what that means. Someone will tell me later, but you ever felt like that? You just, you're winning. You're on cloud nine. You just feel like excited and awesome. Like maybe it's a promotion at work or, or some kind of a game or a challenge that you've been focused on and working on for a long time and you finally get that promotion or you win that game or you succeed at that challenge and you're just like excited. If we were in California, I'd say you're just stoked. Like, like you're just like winning. You know what I'm talking about? Are we together on this yet? My, my oldest daughter, Rebecca, she's learning to play the guitar. I could talk about it because she's not here. Uh, she's learning to play the guitar. And if you're a guitarist, then you'll kind of know what I'm talking about. But there's a moment where you, you're struggling and struggling. And then you learn these things called bar chords. And once you learn the bar chord, you're like, you know where every chord on the planet actually exists on this instrument. And it's like this freeing thing. You're like, oh, like the, the clouds part, the sun comes down. And you're like, winning. I mean, it's just awesome, right? Bar chords. Or... Or maybe, um, oh, I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you, <laughs> you decide when you're 40 to get into running for some unknown reason. And, and you, before, running from your living room to the kitchen to get a, a pop was challenging. But then you run your first mile and you're like, I could run a mile. And then somebody talks you into a 5K and you, I don't know why. And you're like, man, I finished that 5K. And then some of you crazies are running like 26-mile marathons. Right? I love you. Jesus loves you. But you're crazy. And, and like, you're like, I can do it. I'm spitting, sorry. Uh, you're like, I can do it. Like, and, and you're just like feeling a sense of euphoria. You're just in this season where you just feel like you're winning, right? Maybe it's uh, when you had your first kid. Maybe you were told you couldn't have kids or it was going to be a difficult process. Maybe you were in that, that process of trying for a long time and it just seemed like it wasn't going to work. And then she comes home one day and she says, honey, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and you're terrified and excited at the same time. You're like, no way. I have friends right now, that's their story. They weren't able to get pregnant, and they were told by doctors that they probably wouldn't be, and they did in vitro for the longest time, and eventually they finally did, after I think about 10 years, they finally did get pregnant uh, with their first kid, and that was glorious and wonderful, and they felt like they were winning, and it's been about two years since then, and they're pregnant again, and they're just like, this is amazing, like that sense of winning, right? That sense that we have when we know we're on top. Well, that's where we jump into Joshua chapter 7. Because that's where Israel is right now. The nation of God. Sometimes we call them the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews. That's where they are. They've been winning. I mean, they've been roaming around the desert for 40 years. They've heard from their grandparents and their parents how faithful God was in the past and, and how in control he is and how awesome he is and how, how, how gracious and good he is. And they've gotten little tastes of that throughout those 40 years. But, but honestly, up to that point, it's probably gotten a little old. And so God says, hey, 40 years is done. And this guy named Joshua comes on the scene and he says, you know what? Uh, God says to Joshua, you're going to take this group of people where I've promised them to go. And Joshua's like, yes. And the nation's like, yes. And so they start moving that direction and they get up to this giant river. And God says, don't sweat it. Just step into it. It'll part. It'll be dry. It'll be crazy. You'll love it. And they do. Like a million Jews cross this river on dry land. They're winning. It's awesome. They're so excited. They build like this stone monument next to it so they never forget. And they cross this river and they get up to this, uh, probably the most fortified city uh, in that time in the ancient Near East culture called Jericho. It's got these huge walls around it. Last week you heard the story. God said, don't sweat it. Just march around the thing for a few days. And after seven days, just yell at it and the walls will fall down. That's crazy. And they do. And it works. That's winning, right? Like the Jews are just excited. Israel is just 
winning. They're on cloud nine. Nothing can stand in their way. God is for them. Who could be against them? Woohoo! We've had those seasons in our lives. And then we get into Joshua chapter 7. What's the very first word in Joshua chapter 7? What is it? But is never a good word, right? I mean, sometimes, like maybe 1% of the time, it's a good word. But 99% of the time, it's not a good word. All right, students, you come home, and your mom looks you in the eye, and she says, hey, you know, mom and dad are real proud of you, but, oh, no, right? That's not good. Boss calls you into his office, and he says, hey, you know what, John? Your, your sales, your numbers have been great this quarter, better than the last two combined, but never, ever good. Israel has been winning. They've been on cloud nine. They're super excited. And we get to Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, and we see the very first word is but. Let's just read together. We're going to pause on occasion. I want to walk through this whole story this morning. If you've never read this before, I'm so excited to take you on your first journey with a guy named Achan. And if you've heard this story before, awesome. This is going to be a fun review. So here we go. Joshua chapter 7, start in verse 1. It says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zariah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Just pause there for a second because there's some stuff I just want to be sure we're on the same page with. This concept of the devoted things. What were those? The devoted things. God said, go into Jericho, you're going to blow the walls down, and when you go into Jericho, you've got to destroy everything. There's some gold and silver. Don't destroy that. Put it in the temple treasury. We're going to use that. I got plans for that later. But everything else you're going to destroy. All the houses, all the cattle, all the pets, all the goldfish, all the people, you're going to destroy them all with fire. Matter of fact, I'm going to call them devoted things. They're going to be devoted to me. And so, so some of the questions is, well, what does that mean, devoted things? Well, it means that God said, that's my stuff, and you're going to offer it to me. In fire. So, some people, some commentators, and Rick did a good job last week explaining this a little bit, think that because Jericho was Israel's very first battle that they won, that um, uh, it, it acted as kind of a first fruits offering to God. See, back in Genesis, and then repeated in like Leviticus and Exodus and stuff, there was this law about everything that you had, uh, uh, your, your animals or your crops or your produce or whatever you, you produced, like the first fruits would go to God. So like you have a tomato plant, if you've grown tomatoes, you know, when that first tomato comes out and you're just like, it worked. Like God said, hey, that's, that's mine. And Israel said, that's fine. We get that because it was an essence of trust. Like we're going to trust God. We're going to give back that first thing that pops out. We're going to give that to God as a sense of trust, as a sense of this covenant relationship that we're in. And so some people think that Jericho was kind of like this first fruits offering for God in terms of their first battle. That's, that's possible. It's possible. That's what uh, they, were, they were thinking. Um, some people uh, want to say, and I just want to make the point, that the folks in Jericho weren't just slaughtered simply because God wanted an offering or simply because Israel needed land to live in. See, so, so the people in Jericho, the Canaanites, were uh, judged to be wicked. They, they had persisted persisted in unrepentant sin for a long time. And God had said there needs to be judgment. Matter of fact, a lot like in the time of Noah, when God said, hey, the the world is wicked and there needs to be some consequence. We need to get this right. It's very similar with Jericho. So God is not capricious. He didn't just decide to slaughter all the goldfishies and people and stuff because, because 
There might have been this first fruit offering concept, but certainly there was a sense of judgment. And the reality is that ultimately sin, ultimately evil, hurts people. And it, and it, and it separates people from God. Matter of fact, if we get to the end of the talk this morning, where we're going to land, is that's the whole reason God sent Jesus, right? Because sin hurts people, and God loves people, and he wants to figure out how to reconcile that relationship, and so God sent Jesus to make that happen. So here we are asking the question in verse 1, the devoted things, but then the second question there maybe is like, why so fully? When soldiers went into battle, sometimes the thought would simply be, I get to take what I can find. That's somewhat common, but why did God say not only is this stuff devoted to me, but all of it is going to be destroyed? And there's lots of reasons we could kind of toss out there. Some people say that there's political reasons. Um, Now that they owned this land, they were really like demonstrating their ownership by, by annihilating everybody else to demonstrate that it was their land. Maybe there's some truth to that. Some commentators point out that there was some cultural reasons. And, uh, and, and frankly, in 21st century culture, our culture today, we see this story as brutal. The fact that everybody gets slaughtered seems brutal. And in our minds, it, it is. But if this story were being read by a person in the ancient Near East culture when this time frame was going on, they wouldn't have seen it as brutal. It's a different culture. Matter of fact, they would have just expected that to be the normal operations for the day. Uh, when the nation comes in and, and takes us over, that we're all going to get slaughtered. That seems like a really hopeless way to live, doesn't it? And, and so in some respects, some people think that in them getting slaughtered, it was actually a little bit more gracious because if nations kept you alive, it meant for the next weeks and months and years you were going to be tortured. So some people say, well, there's some cultural differences there that it wouldn't have been seen as brutal to them, but we see this as kind of a brutal episode. Um, Some people say that there were some practical reasons for that. You know, left alone, the Canaanites eventually would have attacked Israel again or at the very least would have led them into sin and following the idols of the Canaanites and the worship of other gods and the wickedness that they were part of. And all of those things might be true, but if if I can just be honest with you, I don't like this story. I don't, I don't like it because there does some, seem to be this kind of like brutality that's behind it. And so you're going to hear me just confess this a few times today. That I, I really wish there was kind of maybe a different, I don't know, outcome to this story or there was something that made it more palatable to me. But the reality is that the author who wrote this, his purpose in writing this was not to explain why God said all those things are devoted to me, why God said destroy them fully. His point in writing is to demonstrate that God was clear in what he said. Does that make sense? Like, this is a pivotal thing that we need to understand to unpack this story, I think, in a way that makes some sense. The author's point in writing was not to explain why God said it, but to explain that God was incredibly clear when he said it. Matter of fact, if you jump back to chapter 6, if it's easy to find, cool, and if not, it's okay, I'm going to read it for you. But in chapter 6, verse 18, as God is explaining to the nation what they need to do when they go into Jericho, he says this, he says, But you, Israel, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, uh, you take any of the devoted things for yourself and you make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon you. So the why isn't explained well, but man, it's clear, right? We're together. Makes sense? Looking for head nods or something? Okay, good. I just want to be sure we're clear on that. Let's jump back into the story because unfortunately one guy, we've already been introduced to him, named Aiken, doesn't listen so well. So we get into verse two. That's, that's scary, by the way. 15 minutes on verse one. This does not bode well, does it? No, we'll speed up. Here we go. Verse two. 
It says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua, and they said to him, hey, uh, don't have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole nation toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of the Israel men and chased them before the gates as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So you, you catch the story, right? Somewhat familiar. Joshua sends out some spies to go check out Ai. They go out to check it out. They come back. They say, don't send everybody up. It's up a hill. It's a hot day. Just send out a few people, like a couple thousand, because there's not a lot of folks up there and we'll take them out. No problem. We just yelled at walls. They fell down. We'll go up and take care of Ai. It won't be a big deal. And they go, and Ai kicks their butt. Literally just kicks their butt. Matter of fact, the text is specific. It says 36 Israelis die in that siege. They chase them back to where they were. And verse 5 makes so much sense when we understand that they're coming from a point of winning to a point of this. When verse 5 says, um, And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Like they were so excited and they get up to this battle and they get their butts kicked and their hearts are just like melting. They're just despondent, discouraged, depressed, defeated, deflated, and a bunch of other D words, right? They're just destroyed and they feel it. And so that's where the nation is. We'll jump back into the story. It says uh, in verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. And he and the elders of Israel, and they, and they put dust on their heads, all signs of mourning. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over to the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before uh, their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will this do for your great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clans the Lord takes shall come near by households. And households that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. I tried to highlight it. There's a really interesting pronoun change there. Did you catch it? Because it was he that sinned. We're exposed to that in verse 1. It's Achan who sinned. But it's what? They that are blamed. This is a turning point in the story. It's a turning point in our brains. It's the he that sinned. But it's the they that are being held responsible for that. That is bizarre in our culture. 
our culture as Americans, we are independent. Matter of fact, if you think of the movies over the last, you know, 30, 40 years that have shaped some of our lives, if you're maybe a little older, you think of John Wayne, you know, his, 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 his uh, pistol on his hip and kind of the independent guy going in, saving the girl, beating up the bad guys. Boom. If you're a little uh, younger, about my age, which is super young, then uh, you think of a guy like Rambo. Remember this? The guy who goes in and like blows up a whole nation with one gun and 600 billion rounds of ammunition, right? It's one guy, right? We're, we're kind of an independent culture, right? We kind of think we make it or break it on our own. I will pick myself up by my bootstraps. We're an independent culture. And that's not right nor wrong. It is what it is. But sometimes when we hear stories like this where he sinned and they are responsible, in our heads we're like, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. In our culture, it does seem odd. And yet God is so about they and so about group and so about community. We have some things that parallel in our culture. Matter of fact, I was hanging out with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me some stories. He, he works at a, a, as a trainer at one of our local police academies, and he was telling me some stories about some of the stuff that goes on with the cadets there, and he was talking about one of the cadets that would often forget his, um, his uh, gear, sweatshirt, or body armor, or whatever, down in the last place he was. And as they moved, because they tend to move as a group, the cadets there, they move as a group to the next uh, training place. Uh, He would leave his stuff in the old place. And so over time, as that happened a couple of times, uh, when those new cadets would get into the room, then this person or the other instructor would uh, uh, tell them, hey, uh, whose stuff is this? And that one guy, and when he got his stuff back, guess who had to run stairs? They. The whole cadet crew ran stairs, four flights down. Four flights up, four flights down, four flights up. And there's a reason for that. It's not just because this guy is, is a jerk. He's not. He's actually wonderful. It's not just because police academies are mean. They're trying to train something there, right? They're trying to teach a concept that it's important in your daily duties when you're out of school and life and death is on the line here that you're looking out for each other. Like it's super important that you notice the details going on with your partner or with the other guys that are going to end up in tactical situations with you because, because that's how we stay alive. It's not just about you doing your job as an officer. It's about looking out for each other. If you spend time in the military, you get this right away, right? Because one of you blows it and your whole crew, your whole squad, your whole whatever you call it is running miles or laps or push-ups or the bar or whatever horrible thing that your instructor can concoct, you're doing that. And it's not just because they're mean, they're trying to instill in you this concept of teamwork. Makes sense? Like we have some parallels to this in our culture, even though we're incredibly independent, it makes some sense. So Joshua asks what the problem is and, um, and God tells him and God says, this is how we're going to deal with it. I'm going to have tribes come forward and then I'm going to name uh, a clan and then I'm going to name a household and then I'm going to name an individual and you're going to deal with that individual. We'll jump back into the story so we can see how this plays out. Verse 16. So so Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe of tribe and the tribe of Judah was taken and he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken and he brought near the clans of the Zerahites and a man, uh, man by man and Zabdi was taken and he brought near his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to God, a God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Yep, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. 
When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak of shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them and see they're hidden in the earth underneath my tent. Big whoop! I translated that a little bit because I think that's the tone of Achan's um, confession. Because we get this scene, and you're picturing like a million people out at this, this horrible Hunger Games style situation where the tribes line up and, they, and God says it's that tribe and that tribe comes forward and he says it's from that clan and that clan comes forward and he says it's from that family and that family comes forward. What is Achan doing this whole time? This wasn't like a three-minute episode in time, I don't think. You've got a lot of people moving around. What's Achan thinking? Is he thinking, ah, God, he, ah, God, he doesn't know. He doesn't know it's me. It's under my tent. He can't see it. I, I don't know what he's thinking, right? Or is Achan thinking, forget that. I don't care. I'm waiting this puppy out. Like, yeah, God will probably call me out at the end. I don't care. I'm making everybody go through this. Like, whatever. I think there's some sense of that. And when Achan is finally called out and standing before Joshua, and Joshua says, hey, man, you guys, like, fess up. Be honest. What, what did you go? I took it. Let me tell you how I did it. It's pretty sweet. Like, Taff, you didn't even notice. I think there's that tone right there. He uses an interesting word in that verse, by the way, in that section we just read. He uses the word spoils. See, spoils of war were things that soldiers had the right to take, things very often very common. But God said, there were no spoils. These things were all devoted to me. None for you. And Achan says, oh, no, (laughs) you don't get it. That's for me. I don't care what you said. I don't know if Achan thought God was wrong. I don't know if Achan thought God wasn't fair. I don't know if Achan, we know what, what Achan's heart was, which is that thing is more important than what you said, God. Isn't that the root of all sin? Me saying, no, that thing I want, that thing I want to do, that thing I want to think, that thing I want to see, that's way more important than what you say, God. So we get this scenario where Achan seems to confess, but he, he, really, he really doesn't. He really seems to be semi-proud of what he did. He calls it a spoil, arguing with God. God, you're not fair. God, you're not right. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then we, we'll, we'll see in a second here that when uh, it comes to the judgment time, that it'll talk about um, Achan's uh, sheep and oxen and donkeys. And so the impression there is that Achan was not poor. This is not a situation where like Achan is like, man, I can't feed my family. I'm just going to take a few bucks that I found on the nightstand in that house in Jericho just to buy some bread. This is not that situation. Achan was probably a pretty wealthy guy by this point. It's not something he needed. It's something he wanted badly because God was wrong. It's the heart of all sin. And so we get this sense that Achan is not a guy who just made a mistake. It's not a guy who just blew it in a moment of like stupidity or a moment of weakness or something like that, but it's a guy who's got a hard heart to what God said. And he's going to do what he wants when he wants. And so now we get to the part of the story that I absolutely hate. Verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent, and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him uh, took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bars of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, all that he had. And they brought him to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. On all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. 
And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And we're left with a problem. Because we read this story, and we, we understood a minute ago, the sin of he impacts they. And we get down to brass tacks, and it says that it took Achan's sons and Achan's daughters and stoned them and burned them and stoned them. And I don't like that. I don't, I don't I just being honest with you, I don't like that. Some people say, some of the commentators, you know, say, well, more than likely the kids knew what Achan was doing, and so in essence they were complicit in his sin because they knew what he was doing. I mean, how do you, how do you hide stuff in a tent? It's not like they live in a 12-bedroom mansion, you know. So how, they probably knew it, and they probably thought the same thing as Dad. They said, oh, yeah, we deserve that. We're going to keep that. We won't tell anybody. Because they didn't come up during the, the whole trial of figuring it out who took it. They didn't admit it. They didn't do anything. So some people say they knew about it too, so you know, the judgment there was, was just on them as well. And I, I like that answer uh, because it makes me feel a little bit better. Not a lot, but a little bit. But if I'm just real honest, I, it doesn't seem that obvious in the text. It doesn't tell us that. We can maybe make assumptions towards that, but it doesn't tell us that. And so I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. One thing we know for sure is that, that sin hurts other people. I mean, in this situation, even if the kids were not complicit in Achan's guilt, his sin hurt them. And it's not just that family. I mean, if you read in the beginning of the story, 36 soldiers died because of Achan's sin. Like, you got this, right? 36 women were widows because of Achan's sin. 36 families' kids won't celebrate Father's Day with their daddy because of Achan's sin. So we see this reality, and I don't like this reality, that Achan's sin impacted lots of families, including his own. Either way, however we unpack this story, whatever we do to maybe make ourselves feel a little better about it, or we just let it sit where it is, which is it's gross, and it's challenging, and it's frustrating, and the reality, and I don't know how to put this, is that sin sucks. <laughs> it just does. Sin sucks. And we see it so clear in the story of Achan. The, 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 the reality to the event is that the, God was so clear on what he expected, on what the rules were. And we may not like the rules, and they may not have liked the rules, and Achan hated the rules. God was clear. And, and then choosing to disobey this concept that we call sin hurts However we unpack this, however we decide to try to um, think through it, and I'd love to dialogue the story more if we want at some point. I'd be happy to do that because I don't have all the answers for it. I'm trying to wrap my head around it to some extent. I think there are three things that we can all agree on. And these are three things, if you're a writer downer and you like writing stuff down, I'd say write these down. These are three things that I think we just want to lock into our head from the story of Achan. And they're not rocket science, but here we go. Number one, sin matters to God. Like, come back to me now. Hear this stuff. Sin matters to God because we act very often. Let me try that again. Because I act very often like it doesn't. Like, sin's no big deal. It's just a little bit. It's not a big deal. Whatever. No one's going to know. That thought, that action, that behavior. It's just, it's whatever. I only, I only lost my temper with my kids once this week. It's not, it's Whatever. Like, you cannot think that in the story of Achan. Sin matters 
to God. It's a big deal to God. Sometimes we think, because as a Christ follower, um, my, my sin, I, don't, I actually don't have to pay for it. It's a beautiful thing. If I have a relationship with Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. He paid the penalty of my sin. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So sometimes people begin to think, hey, that's cool. I don't have to sweat the sin then. It happens, it happens, no big deal. No, sin's a huge deal to God. It matters to God. As a matter of fact, it mattered to him so much he sent his son to get beaten to death to pay for it because sin matters to God. The second thing that I think that we would all agree with is this concept of sin affects, infects, and impacts others. Sin affects, infa- infects, affects, and impacts others. It is hard for us to swallow sometimes because that sin that nobody else knows about that you engage in occasionally It impacts others because we were developed to live in relationship with each other because life is better together and there's a beauty to us growing in Christ and discipleship happens best in the context of relationships. However, sin also impacts others. It's a both and. We see it so clearly in the story of Achan with 36 soldiers, with Achan's kids, with Achan's stuff. Matter of fact, uh, other other authors in the scriptures talk about this concept. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uh, uses an analogy to talk about how sin infects and impacts. He uses the analogy of yeast in bread. He says a little yeast leavens the whole dough. And if you've ever baked, you know you just use a little bit and the whole thing is influenced. This reality that sin infects, impacts, influences, right? Paul, again, in Romans 5, gives like the ultimate example of how sin impacts others. He talks about how all sin entered the planet through one guy and gal's choice, Adam and Eve. And through Adam, all have sinned. You and I, sitting in this room, bear the stain of sin because of one guy's choice. You and I sitting in this room get sick because there's sin in the world. Not necessarily because you chose sin, but because there is sin in the world. And it's a broken planet that we live in because of one guy's choice. We get cancer because of one guy's choice. Sin, my sin, impacts others. Are we together? Does this make sense? We would agree on this, right? Third thing I'll say, and then we'll kind of start wrapping up. Sin always has destructive consequences. Sin always kills, always destroys, and always separates from God. Genesis 3 is like the perfect example of that. I mean, Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God in the cool of the day in this perfect sense of unity and relationship. And because of a sin that they choose, it not only begins the process of death for them, but it separates them from God. That's why it was such a big deal for God to send Jesus to earth to die for us so we could begin to repair, he could begin to repair that relationship between us and him. And so there is a beautiful thing as a Christ follower where you don't have to pay for the penalty of your sin. But when I as a Christ follower choose to sin, because it's a choice at this point, when I as a Christ follower choose to sin, I do tweak my relationship with God a bit. Like everything God wants our relationship to be when I choose to sin is, is a little messy, is a little broken, is a little tweaked. And Jesus is so amazing in the sense where he talks about in 1 John 1, he talks about if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just will will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. On a daily, regular way, I've got to be honest with God about my sin and my brokenness and my failures. And I don't lose my salvation every time I sin, and I'm not in danger of hell every time I sin. Praise God, he paid the penalty for my sin as a Christ follower. But every time I choose to sin, it's almost like nailing Jesus back to the cross. Because I'm saying, you know what? What I want, 
It's more important than what you said, God. It's more important than the death of your son. I'm going to do that thing. And we've got to learn to hate sin. Three things that I think are vital. Uh, we talk about Galatians 6. Paul talks a little more about, about how God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. If you, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. Paul goes on to talk about it more in Romans. This concept is built all over the place. And I'll say it again. The thing that we've got to wrap our heads around is sin sucks. Sin sucks. So what do we do? Well, at the end of talks, you know, fun talks like sin talks, guys that, that are up here preaching and talking, they, we love to try to figure out some kind of application, like some kind of action step that we can start thinking through. And like as you walk out of here, you're thinking that and thinking, yeah, this is what I'm thinking or doing or being or whatever. And it seems so easy to me today. Like we've got to figure out how to hate sin. More than I love that momentary thrill that I get, I choose to engage in. I gotta figure out how to hate sin. I'm not even talking about you yet. I'm just talking about me. I gotta figure out how to hate sin. And as a Christ follower, it's a beautiful thing. I don't pay for the penalty of my sin, but it messes up the relationship that I have with God. There, we're gonna end this morning with uh, communion, uh, the Lord's uh, supper, and, and, and it seems just a really fitting end to a to a conversation on the concept. Of sin, because because in this moment when when we begin to look at juice and bread and we begin to uh, think through what Jesus did on the cross for us, we're, we're brought face to face with the reality of our sin. We're brought face to face with our own continual sin. We're reminded how much my sin cost Jesus, and, and then I'm left with the choice to be honest before God about my sin or to keep trying to hide it like Achan. So, so this is how we're going to kind of operate for the next five minutes. Um, we're going to just start singing a song. The, the folks are going to come down and, and, and pass out the juice and the bread. And I'm just going to ask if you just hold it for a couple of minutes while we sing the first verse of this song together. And, and then after we sing, I'm going to come up and I'll say a couple of things and we'll just take the elements together. And uh, what a fitting end for, um, for a talk like this morning.
reminded of blood. And we're reminded of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross that pays the penalty of our sin as a Christ follower. And the good news for Christ followers this morning is that we don't have to pay the penalty of our sin. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. You don't have a relationship with him. You're just beginning to think those things and figure those things out. The good news for you is that today it can be a turning point. It can be a time where you enter into a relationship with Jesus and no longer have to pay the penalty of your sin. Because the penalty of your sin is always death and destruction and separation. So we look at the juice and we're reminded of Jesus' blood that represents life, his death, his life. We'll drink together. We look at this little... uh, little wafer, a little chunk of bread. And bread reminds us of body. And this bread reminds us of Jesus' body, which was literally beaten until blood came out. Because sin matters to God. And because the requirement